If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me once again to Luke's Gospel, Chapter 2, this evening, Luke's Gospel, Chapter 2. And as you're turning there, let me thank you again for your warm hospitality to myself and our family. We've been delighted to get to know you and be with you this weekend and visit and make some new friends and, and connect with this wonderful congregation. And, uh, you know, one of your ruling elders told me some time ago that this pulpit is the best pulpit in the PCA. And uh, I cannot take away from that claim. I cannot detract from that for one bit. This is a marvelous pulpit, uh, a physical evidence of your love for the Word of God and your commitment to its ministries. So praise the Lord for that. We're going to read a familiar passage this evening uh, from Luke 2, uh, verses 8 through 14. Uh, If you were with us this morning, we looked at another one of the songs of the Nativity. We looked at Mary's song, the Magnificat. And tonight, I'd like to look at another one of those songs of the Nativity in Scripture, this time the Song of the Angels. So let's look now to God's Holy Word. We will read it, we'll read God's Word, and then we'll pray and ask for His help and blessing as we study it together. So let's look first, Luke 2, beginning at verse 8. This is the holy and inerrant and inspired Word of God. Hear it. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Amen. Thus far, God's holy word. Would you pray with me, please? O Lord our God, indeed, may the word, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. We ask that you grant us the ministry of your Holy Spirit tonight. Grant us understanding and illumination as we read and study this, your holy word. And again, we pray that you would seal it to our hearts as we read and mark and learn and understand. And all for your glory, for we do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you announce the birth of royalty? Not to say nothing of cosmic, divine royalty. How do you draw attention to something this significant, this momentous? Well, you might be inclined to take your cue from the British royal family. A couple years ago, in 2019, you might recall, it's fresh on most of our memories, I suspect, May of 2019, young Archie was born to Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan Markle. On Monday, May 6th, Prince Harry and Duchess Meghan, maybe formerly Prince, given their aversion to royal duties of late, but nevertheless, they welcomed their first child together as yet unnamed baby boy at the time. And the formal royal announcement, very short and simple, it read thus. The queen and the royal family are delighted at the news that Her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Sussex, was safely delivered of a son at 5.26 a.m. today. Her Royal Highness and her child are both doing well. And then the news broadcast began. The BBC and CNN and various world newspapers, heads of state, posted congratulations on social media And in due time, pictures of young Archie were released, images of him with his parents and his great-grandmother, Her Majesty the Queen. In subsequent days, he was christened at St. George's Chapel in Windsor Castle, 
He was christened by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, using water which had been drawn from the River Jordan, of course, the same body of water where our Lord Jesus himself had once been baptized. Certainly all the requisite pomp and ceremony you might expect fit and suitable for a young prince, most appropriate for the one who is seventh in line to the British royal throne. Such an arrangement seems fitting for royalty. Such an arrangement seems fitting for a potential future king, a monarch. This is the kind of ritual that we would expect, is warranted for such an individual. But what we see here and what we've just read from Luke 2, on the hillside of Bethlehem, out in the countryside, on a cold, rural night, this is not the sort of introit into the world that we might expect of the one who is and will be King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Ancient of Days and the Great I Am. So why the disconnect? Why the disconnect in terms of welcoming such royalty into the world? Well, I want to suggest to you tonight that the how of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the ever-blessed Trinity, the, the how, the manner in which he enters the world, for, for Luke, sets the tone for the manner of his ministry, his earthly ministry. The manner in which Jesus arrives and is announced to the world, teaches us a very great deal about the priorities of Jesus himself, that he himself will emphasize as he brings his message of light and life and repentance and judgment and the king of God and the kingship of God as he brings that gospel to bear upon the world. What we see in our passage this evening in the unlikely location of Bethlehem tells us a great deal about how that babe of Bethlehem will soon turn the expectation of the world on its head. And so as we consider this angelic announcement, the song of the angels this evening, I want to look at this passage with you under four simple headings. The angels were announcing that the Messiah had come, right? So I want us to consider for whom he came, what he brought, how he came, and why he came. Very simple outline. For whom, what, How and why? Let's think about those things together this evening, shall we? So first, for whom he came. If you read, you study through Luke's gospel, you you, you consult a variety of the different commentators, one of the major themes that you'll soon notice that arises out of Luke's writing is upending the expectations of the world. That's one of the major themes that we see in Luke's gospel, and Luke highlights that certainly for us in this passage. Even at the outset of his life, the very outset, still yet a babe, Luke is giving us a preview, at least one aspect of the ministry that the Lord Jesus will bring. You'll notice that the angels, the multitude of the heavenly host, they are sent to give this announcement, not to kings sitting upon royal thrones. It was not given to the senate or the, the powerful generals ruling the known world in imperial Rome. It was not given in Athens to the great philosopher lords impacting the intellectual life of the Mediterranean world. It wasn't even given to the ruling religious council, to the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. No. No, the angels, God's divine messengers, his emissaries, were sent to shepherds. The great announcement, the good tidings of great joy that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. This is an announcement that deserves to be on the headline of every major newspaper in the world. If it were to happen today, whatever the the ancient world equivalent was in terms of media, this news, whatever the ancient world equivalent of the the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal and in USA Today, whatever those were, it should have been headlined there, the Jerusalem Journal, whatever you might have. 
that the stock market should stop trading. People should be roused from their beds in the middle of the night. All the air traffic immediately grounded. This is a momentous event and the world should stop and pay attention. It does not get any bigger than this. But instead, in the middle of the countryside, in the dead of night, to a group of roughshod, poor, uneducated country bumpkin shepherds, these are the ones to whom the host of heaven come and announce and say, glory to God in the highest. Now this, this is all the more incredible, even if you are already aware of the social status of, of shepherds, but it becomes some, all the more incredible when we do realize the stark reality of the kind of social, uh, social estimation that shepherds held in the eyes of the wider public in their day. Here's how one commentator puts it. A shepherd... In the collective cultural thought, a shepherd was thought of as on par with a tax collector or an ancient world loan shark, we might say, untrustworthy and held in near universal contempt. The rabbis prohibited devout Jews from buying wool, milk, or meat from the shepherds on the assumption that it was most likely stolen property. They said no position in the world is as despised as that of the shepherds. Close quote. In fact, the, the Jewish rabbis in these days had themselves tangled up in knots over certain parts of Scripture, as you might imagine. Psalm 23, to say, nothing, to say nothing of others, gave them fits. The Lord, Jehovah, is my shepherd, the psalm opens. How can it be, these rabbis would think, how can it be that God Almighty is a shepherd? A shepherd! And indeed, you might have guessed, Luke is cluing us into something of the mission of the Lord Jesus and the character, the nature of God himself. Why is the announcement of the birth of Christ given to shepherds? Because, Psalm 23, the Lord is a shepherd. That's why. Hebrews 13, the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. That marvelous benediction there at the end of Hebrews. And when God becomes a man in Christ, he comes to tend his flock, does he not? He comes to rescue his flock, to lead his people salvifically to green pastures and still waters. And he comes of all places in his initiation of his earthly life and ministry into this world, he comes of all places to the city of David, Bethlehem. Israel's greatest king, once himself a shepherd boy, romping in the fields outside this city. Who knows, maybe even working perhaps in some of these same hills, tending his father's sheep. Great King David, from whom the Messiah would descend. And the Lord God shepherds his people. And here tonight God himself comes among his people, in Jesus, in order to shepherd his people in the most significant and profound way imaginable. You've heard the expression, consider the source. We have a, a number of friends that are at our congregation that, you know, whenever, whenever there are unsavory rumors that start to get circulated or you start to hear negative rumblings about different things, whether it's in the church or in the community or, or, or elsewhere, they, they, they have the wisdom to pause and say, hold on, before you get too wound up and you get too excited, just consider the source because that will affect how you understand and how you interpret the story. It might be worth taking with a grain of salt. Well, friends, tonight I want us to consider not so much the source, but rather, in this case, consider the audience. Consider the audience. For whom did Christ come? Well, given the original audience of the angelic announcement, there's much that we can discern about the nature of Jesus' great mission of salvation. You see, it's not for the great and the mighty, 
It's not for the wise and the elite that he came. Jesus, the Lord Jesus himself says later on how hard it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. How how often we've seen this ourselves, friends, haven't we? Probably those of you in this room have seen it more often than I have. The sophisticated and the aristocrat almost always misunderstands his message, the Lord's message. They know nothing of need. They've never had want of anything. They know nothing of lack. They They know nothing of dependence or destitution. But the outsider and the unclean, the despised and the lowly, no, no, these folks, they know desperation. They know what it is to be lacking. They know what it is to be needy. They know what it is to be poor and downtrodden. They know what it is to be despised even. And so how sweet that news must be. How sweet that news must have sounded in their ears when the angels said to them that night, Behold, I come to bring you good news of great joy. Right from the outset, people like these are the target of the love and the rescue of Jesus, the great shepherd king. Later on in Luke, when Jesus opens the scroll in the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah 61, he reads a prophecy regarding himself. Why did Messiah come? Well, Isaiah says, and Jesus reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Brothers and sisters, this is part of the great good news of the message of Christmas. It's that in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is indeed for sinners and screw-ups of all kinds. You ever sing that hymn, uh, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, come those who are bruised and broken by the fall. It's for these that Jesus came. You ever heard of the Octorarder Creed? It was a great controversy in the Church of Scotland way back in 1717. So back in these days, a man would stand for his ordination trials, and the presbytery of Octorarder would want him to affirm this statement. It is not sound and orthodox to teach that we must forsake sin prior to coming to Christ. That's not a clunky sentence at all, right? It is not sound and orthodox to teach that we must forsake sin prior to coming to Christ. Now, if you could follow that, that is correct. That's a very clunky and convoluted way to word it, I think, but it is sound and correct. In other words, the point they were making is come to Jesus and come to faith in him now. Come now. You don't have to clean up your act first before fleeing to him. You come to him, sinners. You come to him, warts and all. You come to him, bring your sin, bring your shame, bring your mess, bring your muck, bring it all. Jesus came for the, di- the dirty and the guilty and the ashamed. Isn't that what Paul said? This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so part of the message of the incarnation and part of the message that we love to celebrate and recognize and ponder and praise the Lord for this time of year is that Jesus Christ, the shepherd king, came for you, brothers and sisters. To all of you who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, he came for you. He came for me, for sinners, vile and wretched sinners, even such as us, who stand in need of a savior. That's the first thing for us to see from the passage, for whom Christ came But then secondly, let's notice next what he brought. What he brought. Now, if you notice, back at the top of our passage in verse 8, we're told that it's the middle of the night, right? 
If, you, if you're a Greek scholar and you had your Greek New Testament open, the Greek says that the shepherds were literally watching the watches, probably referring to the old practice of dividing up the night into different segments, first watch, second watch, third watch, and so forth. So someone would stay awake and be on guard during the first watch, and then he would trade off and someone else would take second watch while he went off to sleep, so forth. Right, so at this point, most folks are likely asleep. It's the dead of night. Maybe one or two are keeping an eye on the flocks. It's out in the country. It's, it's pitch black. Maybe there's a campfire nearby to keep them warm, but that's it. And then suddenly, on that quiet, desolate hillside, it's flooded with light. As if, as if they were in a, a stadium in the pitch black of night and someone abruptly turned on the stadium floodlights. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were sore afraid. Now, modern translations like to put it as, and they were terrified, and rightly so. You know, so often we, we, we lose something of this, maybe perhaps because passages like this are just so familiar to us, uh, they lose their punch, or maybe just because we are desensitized to the idea of angelic visitors manifesting themselves before us and what that might mean. And, you know, pop culture references will often depict people having an encounter with an angel, these, these bright, beaming Figures with feathery wings, and they appear with this ethereal choral music singing around them and, and shining smiles on their faces. You might think of that old CBS television show, Touched by an Angel. That, that's the sort of sentimentalized version that I think culture has in our heads when we think of an angelic appearing. But Holy Scripture paints a rather different picture when one encounters an angel, doesn't it? Or when one encounters the glory of the Lord. Right? Matthew 28, at the tomb. After Jesus' resurrection, remember what happened there? An angel of the Lord, Scripture says, descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Or further on in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, the, the women, post-resurrection, the women go to the tomb of Jesus, they find it empty, and they were perplexed, Scripture says about this. Behold, Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground. See, that's the reaction of mere mortals when they come face to face with the messengers or the envoys of heaven. When they encounter the glory of the Lord, they are filled, Luke says, with great fear. The, the glory of the Lord shines around them. They don't know what to do with this. God is appearing. Is this the end? That's more likely the thought that's going to cross their mind. Is this the judgment? Is that what we're experiencing right now? Surely one of them may have harbored that terrifying prospect. And, and for good reason. They're, these are Hebrews. They know their Bibles. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees what? He sees the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple. He sees God enthroned. And then he falls down and says, Woe to me, I am ruined. I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so these shepherds are terrified as the glory of the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty surrounds them. Indeed, that's always, isn't it, friends? That's always what our sin does when we're brought into the presence of God. Our sin condemns us, and we become all too aware of its piercing and condemning reality. The prospect of what will happen to us when a righteous God with eyes too pure to behold sin, when this God 
zeroes in on us like a laser beam, examining us through and through and sees all our vile wretchedness, every sin, every wicked thought, every misdeed. He encounters our putrid sin and the prospect of it rightly terrifies us. We ought to say, woe, I am undone like Isaiah. The shepherds were right to be duly terrified at the encounter with these divine envoys, these emissaries. But notice the first words of the angelic message to them. What does it say? Fear not. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. You see, brothers and sisters, there is a day that's coming where Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. To all those who have spurned and rejected his lordship, there will be great reason for dread, no doubt about it. But that dreadful occasion was not that night. No, the angels proclaimed that this night, the Messiah, Christ Jesus, has come, and it is no cause for fear. It is no cause for fear. No, his coming is good news that brings great joy. His coming brings joy. Our first point was that Christ came for wretched sinners. And in so doing, here we see what he brings. He brings joy. I suspect, if you're anything like our congregation back in Roanoke, that there are those of you in the room tonight who feel as if you know nothing but rejection. I had a a lady talking to me not too long ago, and she said that this was her thought that haunted her all the time. She was one who had known the rejection of her spouse. She's one who has been spurned by her own children. She's one who has been treated absolutely cruelly by those closest to her. The ones who should have loved her the most were the ones who most terrorized her, emotionally speaking. And she said to me one time, it would not surprise her at all. It would not surprise her at all if God were to treat her the same. After all, wouldn't it be justified? Wouldn't he be justified in doing so? Sin, foul and odious as it is, why should God do anything but reject you? And yet we see that for those who trust him, brothers and sisters, the message of the incarnation is not yet, not one of yet further rejection, but actually it is good news of great joy. You may yet be sinners. Indeed you are, so am I, fallen short of his glory. But in Jesus Christ you are forgiven and pardoned and accepted, and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The child that is born of the virgin would one day be condemned in your place. And there is no condemnation for you who cling to him and trust in him and look to him and love him. And so, friends, as you meditate upon the truth of that reality and as you you let that truth sink deep into your bones as you're ruminating on it and marinating it, letting it marinate in your soul and, and, and appropriating that truth, as you do so, the appropriation of that truth tends to fuel joy. It tends to fuel joy. Good news for sinners brings everlasting joy. The good news that you, in all your sin, in all your wretchedness, in all your vile, condemnatory deserving, you stand accepted in the beloved. That's what he brings. He brought joy. That's the second thing. Then thirdly, look with me and let's see how he came. So what he brought, but then how he came. Verses 11 and 12. The angel explains the good news. He says it will be for all the people. The child that is born this very day is Christ the Lord. He's born in Bethlehem, the city of David. His family comes, as verse 5 explains, from the lineage of David. Which means that the child is the heir of David's throne and will bring to fulfillment the prophecy 
that you are all familiar with, I trust, from Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. So there's this ruler coming from Bethlehem. All right? Old Testament has vowed that this would happen. Scripture says it, attests to it. What will be the royal imprimatur that is stamped upon this coming ruler? What will be the sign by which he will be recognized as the great and long-awaited king of Israel, whose coming forth is from ancient of days? Verse 12. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, laying in a manger. Behold your God, the one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. The thrice holy sovereign, the king of the ages, the Lord of glory, swaddled in a peasant's fabric, sleeping in a feeding trough for animals. See how far, friends? Do you see how far God has stooped to visit his people in his love and his grace and his mercy? See how far he's condescended? See how far he's come all the way down? It's upending the expectations, isn't it? Isn't that what Luke loves to do? Upending the expectations. And, of course, this is simply the beginning of a theme that's going to accompany the Lord Jesus all the way throughout his ministry, all throughout his earthly ministry. Later on, foxes have holes, birds have nests, Jesus said, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's an unremarkable entry into the world by all worldly standards, only to be wound up being despised and rejected at his crucifixion and death. Now, see, this is what we were not expecting. Right? A savior and a king, surely, that we were anticipating, right? Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand the place and position of power and authority. Psalm 2, the Lord's anointed shall rule the nations with a rod of iron. Micah 5, from Bethlehem shall come forth a ruler. That we expected. But this, the Lord and giver of life, the king of the ages, born a helpless infant, only to grow up to be crucified, dead, and buried. You know, if, uh, I've been reading it just in, in my own personal devotions, First and Second Peter, the last few days. And uh, if you know First Peter chapter 1, verse 12, it says, These are things into which angels long to look. So these angels that we meet here on Bethlehem's hillside, these glorious mighty ones who have forever dwelt in the presence of the Holy Lord, now at last the plan of the ages, a plan to which they have perhaps only been, been given a glimpse of insight, they're not really fully aware of what God is up to. They long to know, but they're not given that privilege of insight. Yet here, God's plan for the ages is now coming to fruition at last. And suddenly that one angelic messenger who's speaking to the shepherds, now he's joined by, it says, a multitude of the heavenly host. Verse 13, a multitude of the heavenly host. Right? The MC. The leader of the band, if you like, has given his speech, and now he is joined by the remainder of the ensemble, and they cannot help but burst forth in praise, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace. And that brings us then to our final point. So, for whom Christ came, what he brought, how he came, and then fourthly and finally, notice why he came. Why he came. Verse 14 there are indeed consequences to Jesus' coming. There are consequences. 
glorious consequences, no doubt. If I can put it in a slightly schmaltzy way, if I can borrow a little bit, allude to Linus's speech, this is what Christmas is really all about. The glory of God and peace to men and women through faith in Jesus Christ. Why? This is why the virgin conceived and bore a son and and wrapped him in the peasant's fabric and laid him in a manger. Why? The glory of God and peace to men. The coming of Christ into this world absolutely defies the world's expectations because it runs completely counter to the world's pattern and priorities. That's why it upends our expectations. You know this ever since Eden. Ever since Eden, we fancy ourselves, don't we? Deluded little sinful creatures that we are. We fancy ourselves gods of our own realm. We fancy ourselves a master of our own destinies. By our words, by our actions, by our thoughts which betray us, by by, by the, the natural bent of our hearts, we continually love to shake our pathetic little fists toward the heavens, absolutely deluding ourselves, shrieking, my will be done. We may not say it. We may only, me, 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 you may not give admission of your lips to it, but that's what we're thinking. Every act of sin, every act of rebellion. It's not thy will be done, my will be done. That's what I want. And yet Jesus was born to say to God his Father, as one bearing our own flesh and bearing our own nature, nature Lord, not my will, but thine be done. Thy will be done. And when the fullness of time had come and when nails and spear had pierced him through, he, Christ, who had only always known the love and the fellowship of the ever-blessed Trinity from all eternity, he delighting in the Father and the Spirit and the Father and the Spirit delighting in him, that's all he's ever known. And then suddenly at Calvary he knew not the delight, but rather the wrath and the frown of condemnation of God his Father. His peace, that he'd known and cherished for an eternity, his peace shattered for the glory of God and for peace upon those whom his favor rests. Peace toward men. Brothers and sisters, how how wrapped up we are living in this 21st century world, how wrapped up we are in the pursuit of our own glory, our own comfort, how often we are caught up in the pursuit of our own luxuries and and our own advancements, our own renown and prestige. And really, even if we're successful at it, where does it get us in the end? What do we attain? Some sort of illusion of peace? A, a, a paltry substitute that at best only temporarily wards off the stress factors of life? Certainly, whatever we do, it's not going to achieve the biblical sense of wholeness and well-being, body and soul, in communion with the Lord God. It's not going to do anything to alleviate that need. Doing away with our wickedness and doing away with our enmity with God and putting peace in its place. Your prestige and your well-known fame isn't going to do it, neither is mine. The fact is, peace can only be found in the most counterintuitive way. Once again, absolutely defying the world's expectations. And the truth is, brothers and sisters, when you and I cease to strive after, and when you and I cease to serve our own glory, our own ends, our own ego, and instead look to faith in Christ, and join the host of heaven in rendering all glory to him alone... Then, and only then, at last, peace will come, won't it? For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, Second Corinthians 5. You, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, Ephesians 2. For unto us a child is born, and his name shall be called 
Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9. I love how one commentator put it. He said, He came the mighty Lord of glory, born in weakness and poverty, to give his life in pursuit of God's glory, exchanging his peace at the cross, so that you may exchange your alienation from God and have peace with him forever. Close quote. Oh, brothers and sisters, indeed, may the Lord be gracious to us this season that we might worship Christ afresh with the eyes of faith. And may it be that the cry of our hearts and the actions of our lives and indeed the cry of all our affections would more fully declare glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. May the Lord bless the ministry of his word to all of our hearts tonight. Would you pray with me, friends? Our Father, we do bless you that Christ came into the world for such a reason and such a mission as this. Oh God, we ask that you would grant every one of us here that we might know and believe and embrace Christ by faith this season and forever. If there be any here this night who don't know him savingly, O Lord, would you draw them to yourself and may they come to embrace you by saving faith. And for those of us that do know him and love him, Lord, would you cause us to know him and love him deeper still for all the days of our lives, for this time forth and forevermore. May we, like Mary, ponder these things and treasure them up in our heart for your glory and our everlasting good. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.